Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this rich camp meeting experience. Thank you for the for the wisdom that you have and your infinite wisdom. We just don't see it, but in your mind, you think it's good for us to be your co-laborers. Lord, help us to treasure that privilege and that responsibility. Help us to learn how to do your job your way and help each one of us to be your devoted Christian workers. So bless our time in this seminar together. Help it to be clear. Help it to be convicting. And by the Holy Spirit's power, even converting to a renewed emphasis on following you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in, friends. The door of probation lingers longer. But not much longer. We're going to close it. No, I'm just saying. Anyone's welcome to come. I want to give a quick review of what we've been doing so far. Um, this is the Doctrine of Personal Ministry seminar, and the seminar notes are available at this uh, uh, URL. Has, has anyone gotten this to work? I mean, is, is it working well? It did and it didn't? All right, so for some of you who did, you can meet with those who didn't and teach them the way. All right, we're not going to take time to do a techie class here, but that should work uh, if you type that into your little web browser there or your address line. And um, this one is, the presentation we're going to do today has lots and lots of quotes in it. And so this is very helpful to have those notes available so you don't have to like feverishly write down RH, October, whatever, 19, you, you can just have them all ready to go. And I wouldn't be offended if you looked it up as we were going through. That's kind of fun to follow along, but I don't have a slide presentation to be able to show you them, but you have it in your hand if you have that. So that's one thing. And the, the purpose of this, and I call it the doctrine of personal ministries because it's not a notion it's not an invention, it's a doctrine. And by that I mean you can go through the Bible, and I think that we've hopefully convincingly demonstrated that personal ministries is not just some program of the church that was thought up in a committee room somewhere. That this is the actual operating principle of heaven itself. That this is how God operates his government, and we saw that in the throne room of heaven, Revelation 4 and 5. We saw how he wanted to do that on earth through the church in the wilderness, and the first thing they did, even before they got the Ten Commandment law, before they went into, into the promised land, of course, was they organized the people for service, right? We saw that in Christ's ministry, that he didn't just come to minister, but to train ministers who would build a church in his name. And over and over, we see this emphasis on not just having leaders, but the purpose of the leaders is to train the members, so that every member of the church will be a missionary for Jesus. That's the principle we're working with. So today, we're gonna, our presentation is entitled, Doing the Wrong Job Well. Doing the Wrong Job Well. And I believe we've already had a word of prayer, right? Yeah. All right, so let's go to our Bibles now. Luke chapter 23, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Luke chapter 23. It'll take you a minute to figure out why this is in this presentation, but we'll get there. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Very well-known passage. And I will read this to you. And the reason I'm reading and not asking someone else is because this is being recording, but usually we'd ask somebody else to read. As the punctuation demands, right? Because when you see a period, you have to stop. When you see an exclamation point, you're supposed to emphasize, right? And if you see a comma, you're supposed to pause, right? Now, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, according to the punctuation included in every Bible in this room, says, and Jesus said to him, and who is the him in this question? The thief on the cross, right? Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, 
you, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I'm going to ask you a weird question. It's almost heretical to ask this question, but is this Bible passage correct? Oh, see, it's just, it's uncomfortable to ever say no or even entertain the idea, but some went ahead and said, yes, it's wrong, it's incorrect, some say it's not incorrect. Let's break down why we have this discomfort and ambivalence. What's going on here? How can we be unsure? It's, what's, what's troubling us, what's tripping us up? It's the punctuation, it's that comma, that problem comma, because the words that Jesus said are all fine. There's nothing wrong with what he said, it's just a way we read it, and we read it because of the punctuation. Now we understand that punctuation was not part of the original manuscript and everything. It was added later. And I would imagine you can, it doesn't take long to imagine why that comma got in that place because people who had an understanding about what happens when you die and what Jesus did and that, you know, put that comma in there to help with the ease of reading, right? But it actually trips it up because it does a little eisegesis. It puts an idea into the text that the text doesn't necessarily say. So you could read it one way or you could read it the other. So how do you correctly read I mean, Seventh-day Adventists, if, you, if you've ever been to an evangelistic meeting, you've heard this verse addressed, right? It's one of those problem objections that people are going to come back to. So how do we, in our audacity, unani- unanimously look at that passage and say, it is written incorrectly? How do we know that it's not supposed to read that way? Other verses, right? By the way, this is a great hermeneutical principle. How do you dissolve difficult Bible passages? You just keep reading. (laughs) Right? You put all the scripture weight together. So you look at, for instance, you can expand on the story itself. Did Jesus actually go to heaven that day? No, he did not. So automatically, plus the broader teaching of scripture is very clear about what happens when you die. And so you can put that together. So all you have to do is change that one comma, move it over one spot, and it reads like this. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Come, come, come. There's a seat somewhere. And if not, we're going to make one. There you go. Excellent. What a great problem to have. Come on in. Now, what does this have to do with personal ministries? Well, any good Seventh-day Adventist is aware of this problem comma And everything we already went through, you're probably familiar with, right? Duh. What I want to draw to your attention is that there is another problem comma in Scripture similar to this. Because that comma changes drastically our understanding of what's being conveyed, right? That's the difference between, it's time to eat, Grandpa, and it's time to eat, Grandpa. You know, that little bit of difference changes a lot in the meaning. We see an example of that that we're all familiar with in Luke 23, 43. But what I want to take you to now is the other one we're less familiar with. And that's in the book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 11. Now, remember, we looked at how Jesus set up his model ministry, and then we saw how the early church grew. That was our burden yesterday. The church of Acts grew where every member was a missionary. Now we're going to move on through the Bible into the Seventh-day Adventist history. And take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus, saying, And he himself 
gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, who is the he himself to whom Paul is referring? Jesus Christ. He's saying, Jesus set this up. Notice, please, that church organization was not a human construction. According to the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself outlined these different positions and responsibilities and duties in the Christian church. Okay? And let's continue reading again. And he said, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. By the way, don't be so suspicious that every comma is wrong in the Bible now. That's not what I'm trying to say. This is nothing wrong with what we see here in verse 11. But when it says that some should be pastors, some should be teachers, some should be evangelists, what does that word some tell us? That not all. In fact, it strongly implies that most are not. Some are pastors and teachers, administrators, apostles, the list of responsibilities there, but not all. It certainly implies in my mind that the majority would be people who aren't pastors and Bible teachers. So, he's talking here about those some who are. And then in verse 12, he tells the purpose of having those responsibilities in this church, those positions in the church. Here's what their job description is. Verse 12. Now, does someone here have a King James version of the Bible? Excellent. Who would like to volunteer? Highest hand goes first. Okay, that was the first hand I saw. Now, you're going to have to read loud and clear, and I'm going to require you to read it as the punctuation demands. Okay, loud and clear, verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints. Comma. For the work of the ministry. Comma. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Thank you. Well done. What version do you have? Okay. We're getting to you. Calm down. <laughs> we started with King James on purpose. I'm walking through a thing here. Okay. Now, in the King James reading, which I'm not, this is not a course on Bible translations. Everybody calm down. <laughs> Having said that, please note that this is a good sample of some of the differences in different translations. Okay. In the King James, it has that punctuation. First of all, can we all agree that those words are fine? But the punctuation certainly gives an understanding that the role of the pastor, the Bible teacher, the administrator, the evangelist, whatnot, is to do how many things? Three things. The first one being perfect the saints. The second one being the work of ministry. And the third one being edify or build up, grow the body of Christ, grow the church. That is what people typically expect of pastors and teachers and evangelists and administrators, that their job is threefold. First of all, prepare the people, help them develop their character, perfect the saints, right? So you want to take care of your people, you want to mentor to them, and you want to counsel with them, and you want to hover over them and take care of them, right? Perfect the saints. Then they also have to do another thing, which is all the work of ministry, and they need to make sure the church is growing. And I guarantee you, if you had a local church where your pastor was taking care of all the members and was doing all the work of ministry and you were seeing your church grow, you would say, amen. That's a, that's a Bible-based pastor. That's a biblical man right there. We love that. Now, let's move on. 
Does anyone have a New King James Version? And I think we might have some chairs we can grab from another room if we want to... Um... Yeah, yeah, but don't leave. I mean, don't... <laughs> oh, yeah, he's temporary. He's just taking pictures. That's fine. You, you get the seat. Good for you. So, now the New King James Version. Is there a volunteer who wants to read that one for us? Is there anyone with the New King... All right, right here, front and center. See, front row wins. Go ahead. <laughs> for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Hmm. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That's right. How many jobs are listed in this version? Two. But notice it's the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Yes. To equip the people to do their job. Comma. Edify the church, right? Build up the body. Now there's two jobs. As a pastor, I like that one. As a member, you like the King James Version. <laughs> How does one decide... Which version of the Bible is correct? Thank you. The same way we did with the other thing. We let the Bible, let the author have some freedom to explain himself and the Bible as a whole do that. You're going to look at the context, the immediate context, the broader context. So look at what he's saying in this passage. Look what he's saying in the whole letter. Look what he says to all the churches. Look what the New Testament example, you know, just build it out from there and see what it is. So what we're going to do Oh, by the way, does anyone happen to have a new international version? It's okay, we're not going to look down on you. I mean, somebody's probably going to look down on you. But if not, then I'll say the heretical thing. I get the sense from reading the rest of this passage that the best translation of Ephesians 4.12 is from the new international version. <laughs> which says, quote, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now how many jobs are there? One. We have three different options. And they're very different. So let's figure out from context what Paul most likely meant. Let's keep reading. Again, let's just start with verse 11. He cleansed the palate again. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Already the purpose for all of us to become Christ-like, right? Now let's keep going. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, so we're not being that, but instead we're being, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So clearly the goal is to build up a body of Christ that is reflecting of Christ, right? But look at verse 16. From whom, that is from Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I do not believe, as we continue to read that passage there, that Paul meant that pastors, teachers, and evangelists, and administrators are supposed to do the perfecting of the saints, and they're supposed to do the work of ministry, and they're supposed to build up the church. And that makes the recipients, the members, just passive takers 
and onlookers of their ministry. When in fact, it seems what Paul is saying that every part is supposed to do its share and as a result, the body will grow. Thus the NIV, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. Okay? Now, I'm not, this is not carte blanche on the NIV. You understand what I'm saying. But we need to understand what Paul is actually expecting. And I'll tell you this, friends, we need to know what we should be expecting out of our pastors. Yes, sir. I'm going to stand close so you can be heard. Would I uh, think that uh, we, uh, sociologically, at the time that King James was written, mm -hmm. that the priest was the one that was, mm. and the people were passive listeners, so they did not get a Bible. Is it perchance the case, as you bring up, that those who put those inflections, those you know insertions into the scriptures, had a they, had a, they already had a construct in which they viewed things, and so it was natural. I don't think some nefarious thing was afoot, like, aha, the Jesuits got in. But what happens is, the same thing with Luke 23, 43. If that's your understanding of the state of the dead, and that's how you understand the story to be, you're going to put the punctuation that lends to that end. Exactly. Right? So if you have a picture where the clergy are this one group, and they do all the work, and your job is just to give them t uh, prayers and money... Right? So you have this picture in your head and you're like, well, that's what Paul meant. And you read it back into scripture. That's why we have to take the context and say, what was Paul himself actually saying? And let's continue this. So let's look at some examples of the early church. And I promise we're getting to Adventist church history here. Um, well, I'll just go ahead and say this. As we go on, I believe it's going to become clear that Paul viewed the work of ministry as prim primarily twofold. Number one, to be an evangelist, right? To win souls. He would do it publicly at the Areopagus. He would do it one-on-one -on -one in a tent meeting, that kind of thing. But he was a soul winner, first and foremost. And he was a trainer and equipper of the people who were one so that they, in turn, could continue that ministry. Right? So he was evangelist and trainer. That's what you're going to find in most of the context of the Apostle Paul. For instance, as we continue, let's go to... Um, well, let's look back at the book of Acts. This will dovetail with where we went yesterday. Acts chapter 14. Watch this now. Paul's missionary journeys. You'll notice as we go through this that Paul seems to always have a, a, a way that he does ministry. He always has an apprentice with him. Whether it's a Titus or a Timothy or some other person, you know, Saul, Barnabas. There's always a pair of two. And where did he come up with that idea? Jesus, right? He sent them out two by two, gave them various... So he just put in that model ministry that Christ taught, he just put it into action. So what we see is the theory of Christ put into practice in the Christian church. Okay, The Apostle Paul, look at chapter 14, uh, the book of Acts, starting with verse 21. Let's see what, is, what we find here. It says here, uh, and after, uh, let's see, oh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 14, I was in the wrong chapter, there we go. Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now, keep in mind, they had gone to this one city here, and they made, made disciples, they preached the gospel, and then they left. And they went back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So already there's four references to different cities right there, and Paul has been to all of them, raising up believers, and he goes back over and he reviews what he's done and encourages the believers, verse 23, so when they had appointed what? Elders. Elders, where? In every church. 
and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now watch the next one. After that, and after they had passed through uh, Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. <laughs> but notice they're preaching the gospel, making believers out of non-believers, and then they would go back around and go to all the places they had raised up and encourage them and exhort them. By the way, why is Paul always writing letters? Right, to the church in Ephesus and to the Galatians and the Corinthians a couple times and the, those in Thessalonica a couple of times and all these different... Why? Because he had been there, raised them up, and he's trying to continue to exhort and encourage, but he's not there in person doing it. He spends some time there preaching the gospel, then some time training, equipping them, and then he moves on. That was his missionary mindset. That's why the missionary maps in the Bible have lines all over the place. He didn't go to just one place, raise up a believer, and become the pastor and stay there. How uninteresting would that map be? You know, it's one line with a dot. <laughs> the missionary journey of Paul. That's it. But no, look at that one passage. I mean, how many cities are referenced there? And he's going and going and going and going and going. It's very cool. And he noticed how does they operate? Let's look again. What is he expecting those churches to do in his absence? How are they to be governed while he's gone? Elders in every city, in every church. Local elders are to be the governing body of the local church. Yes, ma'am. It's actually really interesting because in Latin American countries, yes. many times one pastor has like 20 or 30 churches. Amen. You see your pastor maybe once a year. I don't want to skip ahead to the application part yet, but, <laughs> but I will tell you, you can do an interesting thing if I forget to say at the end. If you take the world church statistics, with the Seventh Adventist Church is, you know, 20 plus million now, and they're pretty decent record keeping, at least from what's reported, and they, they post it online within a year or two, and you can go, and I've done this experiment, and it's all published on the Adventist statistics and archives or whatever research page, and... Uh, you can look at any two places in the world, any two comparable things, like a union here and a union here, a conference here and a conference, a division, division, whatever. And you take every other factor or variable out of the mix and just look at one thing. What is the ratio of pastors to churches? Okay? Every single time that I have found, there might be an anomaly that I haven't found yet, but every single time when each pastor has more churches or you, there are fewer pastors per church, the growth rate is higher. Now, someone could take that information and make an argument, and I'm not making that argument, but someone could make that argument and say, hey, pastors are killing our church growth. <laughs> I don't think that's true. But as the title of our presentation today hints, I think a lot of our pastors are doing a great job they're just doing the wrong job very well. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. All right. Let's start with the Bible still. Let's go to 2 Timothy. We're going to see the application of these principles in the early apostolic church, and then we'll go to the early Adventist church. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 1. How many of you attended the ordination service just the other day? Isn't that a wonderful service? I love those things. And um, it says here, 
I've yet to be to an ordination meeting that doesn't quote or cite or preach from this particular passage every single time because it's Paul's charge to Timothy, his apprentice, his protege. And it says here in verse one, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach what? The word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of a what? An evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And when, I guarantee I know what happens. When the members of the Constituent churches are assembled in an ordination service and they hear that conference president give that charge to those newly ordained, newly minted, fresh off the line, you know, pastors. They're like, that's right, pastor. You be good. You preach the word to us. (laughs) But let's think it through. To whom do evangelists preach? Unbelievers. And he says here, do the work of an evangelist and therefore fulfill your ministry. (laughs) When we have a picture, somehow we've developed, and I I say we, I don't want to presume upon you, but most of us, I imagine, have the picture in our mind that the job of the pastor is to preach the word to me. But that's not what Paul said. We do the same thing with ministry that those folks did with the state of the dead. (laughs) We read into it what we want to see. Mm. (sighs) Let's look at one more passage. Titus, still in the T section there, just right next door. Titus chapter 1. So we've seen an example of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. We've seen his counsel to Timothy, and now let's see what he says to Titus. Verse 5. It's a very short passage, but it's packed with importance. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. Now let's pause. You can only leave someone if at one point you were with someone, right? So clearly the inference is that Paul and Titus had been traveling together, and they went to this place called Crete. Now, if you know your geography, Crete is an island, right? It's not just a single city. It's a territory. It's a geographic territory that's, an, that's bordered by water. It's an island with many churches and cities on it, okay? So Paul apparently had come from what we can learn just far from this little bit of a text. Paul had come with Titus to Crete, and then Paul leaves without him. And he's explaining why. Now, I imagine that he had already explained before he left, <laughs> but, I, but I, I read this and I think, oh, he just sees Paul gone one day and there's a little letter to Titus. And he says, for this reason, I've just left you. Um, but clearly they've talked about it before. He's just reviewing it with him now, right? For this reason, I left you in Crete. For what reason? That you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now, clearly when Paul went and preached, he preached the full gospel message, right? But there were still some things lacking when he left. And what is the thing that's lacking? It's the church organization. Because we keep reading. And appoint elders, where? In every city. 
So there's multiple cities in this territory of Crete. Paul and Titus have preached the gospel and made believers their good members, but now they have to be trained and prepared and organized. And so Paul leaves and said, all right, Titus, now that's your job. Train and equip these people and set up elders in every city as I commanded you. So notice this is not just a one-off idea. This is the command of Paul. This is his consistent teaching. This is what we do. This is our methodology. So again, we see that Paul's job for the ministry is primarily evangelism, to be a soul winner, and to be a trainer, equipper, organizer of the membership so they can be self-sustaining members of God's body. Now, let's go to Adventist history. We'll kind of walk this out of chronology. I'll start over here as early. Do you think I can close this a little bit? Ugh, the sound of children playing. Ugh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. For the recording, that was a joke. All right. <laughs> oh, we're going to walk through the timeline. All right. Now, the Seventh Adventist Church, as you know, was organized in the year 1863. They all said it with one accord. 1863, that was, we have to say this because we're in Michigan. Michigan, of course, was the only conference in the world that predated the General Conference. The idea of having a General Conference came from Michigan. All guys people said, amen. <laughs> For you non-Michigan people, we, we still accept you. Um, but the, the idea was, oh, there's a Michigan Conference of Churches, right? And hey, let's have, what about multiple conferences? Let's get them all together. And they started having different conferences. And they said, let's make a general conference of all. And that's where it came from. So in 1863, the church was organized, but there were only about 3,500 members in the church at that time. So we get this idea that it was like some Indianapolis-sized San Antonio Stadium thing. It wasn't. It was, uh, it was a few hundred, maybe, at the most, people would be in the room and this would be happening, right? But anyway, it was organized and... But between that time, with such a small beginning, from 1863, in the next 20 or so years, the church just grew explosively. It was just on fire. So much so that pub public or secular publications started taking note of this denomination on the rise. And here's a quote. This is from 1886. When asked by the Wabash, Indiana Plain Dealer newspaper, this is the exact question, by what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly? Elder G.B. Starr said this, Well, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. None. Now think about this. This is 20 years after the church was organized. Now, of course, that was official organization. They had already had ministerial credential and things like that back into the 1850s, a little earlier. So at least 20, let's say a quarter century now, 25 years or so. At least that much. And no settled pastors. And it was astonishing how fast the church was growing. He explained how that worked. Again, he said, well, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. Our churches are taught to take care of themselves while nearly all of our ministers work as, what do you think? Evangelists in new fields. Now notice that. It says nearly all of our pastors, which implies that there are a few, some administrators. Some are pastors, but the overwhelming majority of the church are those members who are caring for their local work. That was 1886. 
no settled pastors. Let's move forward in time 26 years later to 1912. General Conference President A.G. Daniels, speaking at a ministerial institute in Los Angeles, California, said these words. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. Now, get three guesses and the first two don't count. Where, what kind of locations do you think would get a settled pastor? <laughs> Battle Creek, big ones, institutional, you know, the larger churches. Well, it's a big church. They probably need a, a pastor. Come on. And this is exactly what he said. In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors, but as a rule, apparently a rule that we break, but <laughs> a rule, a general rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward the church, their church work without settled pastors. So it was still the overwhelming majority of the time and now we're into the 1900s, 1912. Most churches didn't have a pastor. Now, he was not a prophet, but I do believe he had some insight here when he said what he says next. And I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. He explains why. For when we cease our forward movement work and begin to settle over our churches, to stay by them and do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on a retreat. He said if we put a pastor in every church, it's going to slow down church growth. 1912 that was. Let's go forward 45 more years. 1957. In a lecture given at the Washington Missionary College and Seventh Avenue Seminary, H.M.S. Richard Sr. Anybody remember him? All right. Lamented the then current situation that he saw in the church. This is what he said. He said, the time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. And then he goes back in his mind, he says, when I was baptized and later became a young pastor, a young preacher, we looked upon churches, and it seems to be what he's saying there, churches of other denomination churches, right? That had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. It's an indulgence. It's kind of a spoiled thing. Most of our preachers were out on the firing line, holding meetings, winning men to Christ, and raising up new churches. Then, and keep this timeline in your brains, then every few months they would come around and visit the churches that had already been established. Where do you think they got that notion? And he tells us, this seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. Let me put this idea in your mind. The Seventh-day Adventist movement gets its message from Scripture, but we should also get our method from Scripture, right? God not only tells us what to do, He tells us how to do it well. And the early believers who, got, who said, let's just take the Bible as it reads and get the message, they also did the same thing with the method. 
This is what Paul did, and this is what Titus did, and this is what Timothy did, and this is what the early church was doing. So let's just put it to work. And lo and behold, it worked. What are the odds? Moving forward. 1995 or so, this is the best I can date this, C.D. Brooks, by the way, was a giant in our church. We lost him a couple years ago. But he said this, when I was a boy, and I'm not going to try to do his voice. <laughs> when I was a boy, we saw our pastor once every five weeks. Now, what did HMS Richard Sanger say? Every two or three months? C.D. Brooks says, every five weeks. Today, nearly every Sabbath, there is a preacher, and still our members wonder, what is happening to us? Is the Holy Ghost still with us? HMS Richards had the same limit that C.D. Brooks had. When they were younger, things were different, and things were on fire, and things were growing, but now we've started to settle and hover and dote over, and it's killing our churches. Now, someone, somewhere, some general conference office, caught on to this at some point. Because in 1994, they published the, uh, this edition of the, um, it doesn't have it in there, but it's, this is for the um, oh, Elder's Handbook. That's what it is, right? Uh, and it's an Elder's Handbook teaching local church elders how to do their job well. Okay? And notice this statement. You can find this on page 23. It's the green edition if you have them on your shelf somewhere. During the Middle Ages, the clergy largely took over the work of the church. The Seventh-day Adventist church still struggles to overcome that medieval tradition and seeks to restore the biblical concept that all believers are ministers. Members in general and elders in particular need a greater vision of their significance and responsibility in the church and its work. They look back and say something has crept in from the medieval church. What's that code for, by the way, the medieval church? The Dark Age, that's the papacy, right? That's, that's the wine of, can we say that? <laughs> Is that one of those false ideas that's come in that Satan has used to kind of kill us and get us to just watch somebody else do work and we ourselves get disengaged from the service of God? He said, we got to fix this. I love that that was there. I was like, praise the Lord, somebody noticed. We're going to do a thing now, right? I went to... Uh, I think it was, I was at Southern Adventist University. I was presenting this particular message. And I like to, when I go, typically take the books with me. Uh, so you can see that this really is hell. I just moved so all my stuff's in boxes right now. So you don't get the book itself. But I, trust me, it exists. Okay. But I didn't take it on this trip. And I was like, oh, that's okay. They have an ABC. I'll run down to the ABC. I'll pick another copy of the Elder's Handbook. It's worth it for the sermon illustration. So I go in there and I couldn't find my green Elder's Handbook. Didn't have it. They had a blue Elder's Handbook. Now, the color doesn't really make a difference, right? But each color denotes a different edition. And there had been, and so I looked for page 23, and while there was a page 23, it didn't have that quote on it anymore. And it didn't have anything like it. Now, I'm not trying to get conspiratorial here. Calm down. But that notion had been removed. Instead, what I found was page 28 that says this. And see if you can notice any kind of difference here. The Seventh-day Adventist church is growing rapidly, and many churches are understaffed. <laughs> what is that code for? They don't have their own pastor, right? Many churches are understaffed. 
In such situations, there may be large multi-church district where a pastor is shared among several churches and is able to visit each church once, only once every two or three months. Which is exactly what HMS Richard said was what he grew up with when the church was booming. It is the faithful service of local elders that helps keep these churches strong and growing. But what's the implication? What's the sentiment being expressed here? That is not the norm and it's not the ideal. The best situation would be for all churches to be fully staffed. Right? But until then, it's a stopgap measure. Have some good elders who can run things until then. But man, there's some poor places that only get to see their pastor every two or three months. Let's pray for them and hope those elders... <laughs> they don't put that in there, but I have a suspicion that might be the case, right? So, what I want to share with you now, and we might have some extra time for some question and answer. I don't know. We'll see how that works out. I say that, but then we run off the clock every time. But I want to read to you some statements from the Pen of Inspiration, and this might be more Spirit Prophecy quotes in one presentation than you've heard in a long time. I'm not apologizing. I'm just telling you. Here it comes, okay? But let's see if we can piece together if Mrs. White had anything to say about this topic. This is from Evangelism, page 381. If the proper instruction were given, if the proper methods were followed, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. But the churches are dying, and they want a minister to preach to them. They should be taught that unless they can stand alone without a minister, they need to be converted anew and baptized anew. They need to be born again. She saw pastor dependency as grounds for reconversion and even rebaptism. Now, I don't know if she was just using broad language to make her point or if she literally meant, no, that's grounds for rebaptism. But she says you need to be born again. The, the idea is that you have lost your connection with Christ and you're connected to the pastor instead of to Jesus. Right? Ministry of Healing, page 149. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Please get that idea in mind. Church should be school. Okay? Church should be school. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, how to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes, how best to help the poor and to care for the sick, how to work for the unconverted. You should come to church and get intensely practical instruction for your work of ministry. That's what you should expect out of church. Church should be school. Um, we'll come back to that in a few minutes, that notion here, but I don't know how, how much of that is an accurate assessment of what's happening now. But I would imagine that most churches have very little, if any, regular, consistent training of its members for works of service. Most of the time we expect church to be inspirational, maybe biblical information in an academic way or something like that, a fellowship time, a spiritual devotional time, but not, we don't go expecting practical training and tools and resources and plans and that's kind of thing to be laid out. In fact, we might even say that's not spiritual. We don't want to get down in the weeds about this. Let's just keep it ethereal platitudes and these kind of things. But apparently church is supposed to be a lot more practical than it is. 
Let's keep going. This is from the Atlantic Union Gleaner, January 8, 1902. There should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches. Well, I don't know where the ambiguity is there, but there it is. Okay. There should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches, but let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act, leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in each locality. As the hand of God, the church is to be educated and trained to do effective service. Its members are to be the Lord's devoted Christian workers. That was the Atlantic Union leader. Let's go to the other ocean, the Pacific Union recorder. The same year, just a few months later, April 24, 1902, she wrote, Oh, what a work there is before us. Our ministers are not to hover over those who have received the message. Just as soon as a church is organized, let the minister set the members to work. The newly formed churches will need to be educated. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think the methodology we should practice is just have an evangelistic campaign. The evangelist packs up his banners and goes on. You look at the ministry of Paul and his apprentice, protege, ministers. They would go to a place like, for instance, we looked at Antioch. You go there and you find out that Barnabas saw the work that the lay members were doing. He said he was a good man, right? And he said, this is, praise the Lord, this is great. But he went and got Saul from Tarsus, brought him back to Antioch, and they stayed there, according to the Bible, a year and a half. So they would spend intense focused time on these newly established churches, specifically training and equipping them for works of service so that they could trust them that they could leave and they would check in on them, they would come by and visit, they would write letters, there would be correspondence, they would have people go back and forth. So they weren't just untethered and unleashed and off on their own, but they didn't need to have Paul just stay there week after week after week after week after week. Move on. Go do your job. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7. 19 and 20, the greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God and to depend on him, not on the ministers. Let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. Let him teach the people how to give to others the knowledge they have received. Now, I'm not saying go home and audit your pastor or how much time he spends doing this or that, but there should be a trend towards more education and less just inspiration for the sake of it, right? We should lift people up to a standard and then give them a, a method, a format, a thing, give them a framework in which they can put that to use. I mean, you're coming here to camp meeting. You're going to get a lot of information, hopefully a lot of inspiration here, a lot of great testimonies, but then what? We're going to have camp meeting again next year. We have to start running our whole selves, our whole church out of business. The goal is to win the world and go home. We should stop being good, just being okay, being here. And that's going to take a radical shift in thinking. I love this one. It's particularly pointed. Evangelism, page 382. If the ministers would get out of the way, <laughs> if they would go forth into new fields, the members would be obliged to bear responsibilities and their capabilities would increase by what? By use. Think about that. If the minister would just get out of the way, it almost is like there's an, almost an unsettled... Ever met a new believer? Ever been a new believer? They're just itching and scratching to do something, right? And they kind of get a wet blanket. Just get out of the way, minister. 
I mean, give them the tools they need and set them to work, and they're probably going to mess up some, but give them a shot. Get out of the way. You go raise up a new, your, your job as an evangelist, you might be a better public presenter, you might be a better soul winner on the big scale. Go do that and let them run their church services. They can run a prayer meeting, they can run a Sabbath school. They can run to testimony time. They can do, by the way, Spirit Prophecy tells us we should not expect a sermon every Sabbath. Okay. <laughs> I'm just telling you. It's true. Anyway, but if they would get out of the way, then it says the members would be obliged. They would be obligated to bear some responsibilities. And she said their capabilities would increase by use. Now let's break this down. To say that their capabilities would increase implies that their capabilities are not that great, right? Now, one thing that has, I believe, shredded the effective ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a false notion of spiritual gifts. We have this idea, well, that's not my gift. It's Mark Finley who aptly said, look through the Bible, nowhere is witnessing ever mentioned in a list of spiritual gifts. It's supposed to be standard equipment for the born-again believer. It should just come out of you, right? But we'll do, we'll hear these people, oh, well, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, I tried, to, I tried to reach out to my friend, and I asked them if they wanted a Bible study, and they were like, no. So I don't, you know, I just don't, it's not my calling. I went door to door this time, and I'm just not good, I, I'm just not, I'm not good at it. I get nervous. I get twitchy. I forget my own name. And, you know, I, I just, it's just not my gift. I'm not that good at it. And what I don't want to do is turn around and say, yes, you are, because you probably, you probably are pretty terrible at it. <laughs> right? But can we at least acknowledge that as a starting point? Say, yeah, I'm really not that good at talking to people. But let me ask you a question. If you were in a car accident, right? and you had a, a bad break on a leg or something like that, and you had to have pins and reconstruction and casts and the whole thing, you were immobile for a while, and the weeks went by, say a couple months, and there's some apparatus, and they finally the day comes and they take it off. Is this leg going to look different than this leg? Yes. yes. It's probably going to smell different. It's going to have a different color. It's going to have a lot of differences. But what's one of the most noticeable differences between your two appendages now? One is small and weak and with it. It's called atrophy, right? It just shrivels up. Now, what do you do with that? They've gone through the repairing process, but now you got this thing that's half dead. You got a rehab, right? So you get a physical therapist assigned to you. Let's say the nice lady comes in and says, oh my, look at that leg. And uh, what are we going to do? And the first thing you do is you stand up. It's like, I got this. And you stand up on that leg. And what happens? <laughs> you fall over. It has to hold you. In it. And what if the physical therapist in that poor condition that you have now were to look at you and say, oh my. That's tough. Um, it seems evident that you have not been given the gift of mobility. <laughs> Look, you're not that good at walking. I mean, you don't have the equipment for it. You're not built for it. Literally, physically, you're not built for walking now. What would be best for you? Bed rest. In fact, let's go, let's go ahead and formalize it and schedule the amputation. Right? Of course they wouldn't say it. Now, would they say, hop out of bed and go race down the hall? No. They're going to do some point between nothing and everything. And it's going to be called something. And it's probably going to be something small at first, right? 
it probably won't even be bearing your weight on it yet. It might be just stretching and some in the bed exercises, a little weight train, a little something, right? And they'll build up, but your capabilities will increase by use. Friends, just because you're not good at something, let's put it this way. Not being good at something is not evidence you should do it less. It's evidence you indeed should do it more. If you're not good at winning souls, praise God, do it more. If you're not good at holding spiritual conversations, practice, get some training, and go practice. Just do it some more, right? But this is what Sister White was saying. She's not expecting that everybody comes out a skilled evangelist, but you get better the more you do it. And your capabilities will increase by use. Yes, brother. Well, you could say that too, that I'm insecure in the Spirit's power to do in me what he promised to do. Yes, we could, sure, I wouldn't mind saying that. Let's keep going. Uh, let's see here. A review of Herald, October 22, 1889. If church members are educated, boy, this sounds harsh, but here we go. I love saying st- strong things from the spirit of prophecy. Can I be like, it's not me. It's her. I'm just, I'm just behind it, you know. But here she says it. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members. Notice you can still be a member, but be silent and useless. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members, instead of benefiting the church, they will be a hindrance to its advancement and growth. If they are educated to lean upon the minister, they will become only inefficient and demoralized members, and the church will be powerless instead of active and efficient. Now, I see a lot of hope in that statement. Let's go back to that first clause. If church members are educated to be silent and useless, what is the implication? They have to be taught. It doesn't come naturally to the new believer to be silent. Again, you come, notice somebody who's just came out of that series of Bible studies, they just came from the campaign and they gave their heart to the Lord and they've joined the church. They can't shut up. They go to the water cooler and everybody else is talking about the sports game or whatever's in the news. They're like, forget about golf, brother. Let me tell you about the mark of the beast. Right? And they're going to tell you, by the way, the Pope's the Antichrist and, and Sunday's the... Te-. And, and, calm down, you know? <laughs> And it kind of bowls. Now, do they need to be trained how to share their faith more effectively? Yes. But wouldn't you much rather have to harness that energy than try to draw water from a rock? Oh, my goodness, right? But I don't know of any church that's ever put on a seminar entitled How to Be a Silent and Useless Member. I don't think any church probably has ever done that. If they do, talk to the conference quickly. <laughs> We're teaching some bad things over here. But that's not how it happened. How does the education happen? You don't sign up for a course to be silent and useless. You imitate those who are. That's right. You learn by osmosis. It just comes across that way. You take a new believer. They're in the church for six weeks. They are on fire. Six months they're still aflame, but it's more controlled, a controlled burn. Six years, if they're still there at all. They found their pew, they found their spot, they go through the motions, they've learned the climate and the culture, not by direct instruction, just by being around it. I told you we'd revisit that one statement earlier where she says every church should be a training school for Christian workers. I used to think that was such a powerful line. Every church should be a training center. Every church should be training their people. Until it dawned on me. 
every church already is training their members. Your church currently is a training center. But there's two directions the training can go. Right? You can be active and vibrant and effective soul winners, or you can be silent, useless, ineffective members. When you go back to your local church, you may not be the pastor, the elder, the deacon, you may not have any position on the board, I don't care, but you are going to be an instructor for someone. By your own example, you're going to start changing the culture of that church. Stop hoping your pastor because... I love pastors. But the members have to take hold of the mission of Christ or this thing will never get finished. Let's keep going. Told you there was more. Uh, the last quote was from Review and Herald, October 22, 1889. Review and Herald, Oct uh, July 16, 1908. There are many who have never heard from the word the reasons for our faith, and yet some of our ministers feel a burden to hover over little companies of believers in an effort to hold them together. The best way to hold them together is to induce them to maintain a living connection with God and to exert their influence in seeking to draw others to him. The best thing a pastor can do to keep the church together, and we think, oh, I got to meet with these people and counsel with them and God, and there is a place for meeting and counsel. I get that. But the best big picture way to harmoniously integrate the church members together is to put them on focus for mission, give them practical instruction and training, give them a job to do, set them to work. Which leads us to Gospel Workers, page 197, 198. In some respects, the pastor occupies a position similar to that of the foreman of a gang of laboring men or the captain of a ship's crew. They are expected to see that the men over whom they are set do the work assigned to them correctly and promptly, and only in case of emergency are they to execute in detail. So she lays out the philosophy. Now she gives a parable. The owner of a large mill once found his superintendent in a wheel pit making some simple repairs while a half dozen workmen in the line were standing by idly looking on. So in one sentence, we've got eight characters in our story. There's the owner of the mill. Then there's the superintendent. And then there's six workmen in the line. And what is the scenario she's just painted? The owner comes to his own facility and sees the superintendent. And where is he? Down in a wheel pit doing what? making some simple repairs while a half a dozen workmen in the line were standing by watching, right? Yeah, one man working, six men watching. Now, the proprietor, that is the owner, after learning the facts, so as to be sure that no injustice was done, we shouldn't just rail against pastors, by the way. We should examine our own situation. Let's be clear. The foreman, uh, the proprietor, after learning the facts so as to be sure that no injustice was done, called the foreman to his office and handed him his discharge with full pay. You can imagine the scenario. He looks and he's like, well, that guy been down there all morning? Yeah, he's working, working his tail off. He's just really sweating it out. He's like, all right, hey, um, when you get down with there, come up to my office real quick. Okay, hang on, I'll be there in a minute. The miss lady comes up, he's all, how can I help you? I got to get back down there. Things are going to fall apart if I'm not there. How can, what, what can I do for you, sir? He's like, just real quick, is it what, what I saw? Was that the case? He's like, yes, I'm working my back off down there. He's like, okay, that's what I thought. You're fired. He's like, I'm what? You're fired. And he asked the question, why? 
He's like, you're going to fire me? I'm the only one working. I'm working for seven people down there, and I'm the one fired? She continues. In surprise, the foreman asked for an explanation. It was given to him in these words. I employed you to keep six men at work. I found the six idle, and you doing the work of but one. Right? I didn't employ you to be the worker and they to be your watchers. <laughs> I employed you to get them to work. That's the job of a pastor. Right? She goes on to explain. Your work, that simple repair in the wheel pit, your work could have been done just as well by any one of the six. People say, oh, but the pastor's so much better at giving Bible study. The pastor's so much better. He might be, but if you could train and equip and you put it to practice, you'll be just as good at winning souls as any pastor because the ordination does not give you some mystical, magical God power that you can do something. No, it's simply a recognition of the work that you've been trained and prepared for so that you can get other people to be trained and prepared in their local context to win souls for Christ. Your work could have been done just as well by any one of the six. And notice the financial reason. We haven't even talked about stewardship in this. I cannot afford to pay you the wa- to pay the wages of seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. There's two important thoughts right there. Number one, I cannot afford you. I cannot afford this scenario. Let's think about it from a financial perspective. How many pastors? Does anybody know how big the Michigan Conference is? Just quantitatively, how many churches there are? How many members there are? How, what are our numbers? Yeah, roughly 26,000 members and round numbers and about 186 churches and companies. Okay, I don't know exactly how many are companies, but let's say at least 150 of them are full churches. There might be some companies, but the majority are churches. And If every church had to have a pastor, and between the salary and the benefits of health care and education, all that kind of stuff, let's say it's maybe $80,000 per pastor. Don't, don't get that hand, I'm not taking home $80,000. If you understand what I'm saying, the impact of the conference financially for one FTE, one full-time equivalent, one, that's what it is. It's massive. That's massive. For example, a local evangelistic campaign usually costs in the neighborhood of $10,000. That's eight evangelistic campaigns a year that could be done in the place of one pastor. Think about it financially. By the way, let's just pretend for a moment that Revelation 13 is going to come true. (laughs) That there will be a financial penalty for those who are faithful to God in the last days. And if we truly are the remnant church, what's it going to look like when, I don't know, the tax-exempt status gets revoked from churches? How's that going to impact our bottom line? What would happen... If we couldn't have 100 pastors anymore in the Michigan Conference, what would happen if we could only afford a fraction of that? We would immediately have to rethink how we deploy the pastors and employ the church members. We would have to have a paradigm shift and we'd have to do it in a panic emergency situation. Wouldn't it be better to get ahead of the pitch These are important facts. All right, now, notice the other thought in there. I cannot afford to pay the wages of seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. 
We talked about it. You never learn a course from how to be a silent and useless member. But apparently the pastors have been inadvertently teaching idleness by their hard work. They're not doing a bad job. They're just doing the wrong job. I'd say most cases very well. But if every committee has to be chaired by them, every visit has to be done by them, every campaign has to be done, every single thing, every prayer meeting, every Sabbath school, everything, they're teaching idleness and practicing bad stewardship. These are big issues. Now, she goes on to say, the incident may be applicable in some cases and in others not, but many pastors fail in not knowing how or in not trying to get the full membership of the church actively engaged in the various departments of church work. If pastors would give more attention to getting and keeping their flock actively engaged at work, they would accomplish more good. Have more time for study. By the way, the sermons you did here would be better. More time for studying and religious visiting, which probably include visiting those sick members and that kind of thing, and also maybe the new interests who need Bibles, right? And also avoid many causes of friction. You ever notice that there's a spirit in a church whenever you're rallying to a cause together? You have a campaign, you're raising, you're doing a thing, you're having a building, something that you're all working together, it changes the dynamic of the relationship amongst the people. Furthermore, I don't need a show of hands, but how many of you have ever been in, in a scenario where your local church lost its pastor and you had to go some months without one? Right? Some of you might be in it right now. I don't know. I'm guessing, I know it's a trying time. Oh, we're going to find a preacher. We're going to do this and this. But afterwards, I've yet to experience it when they didn't have look back with fondness on that time. I like, remember that time we all had to meet together in the gym or the thing they had. It was just... It may be tough and it may be a growing experience, but you look back on it like, that was great. Now you're not upset that you have a new pastor. But we should reflect on that a little bit. What would it look like if we appreciated pastors in their role and we picked up the role of church members? The most sobering of all is the last one I'll share, Gospel Workers 352. The work of God in the earth can never be finished until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. Language does not get plainer. It will never be finished until. Now notice it doesn't say it won't be finished. It just won't be finished until this happens. Now other statements, and I don't have them included here, she never says that if we're waiting for the full membership of the church 100% to get behind everything, then we're never going to get there but she does infer that the larger portion will get there. Now, I'll give you a couple of pet theories here, some practical instruction. I would encourage, one way, how can you get more, a higher percentage of your members active and participative? Well, one way to be is to lower the number of members you have. I know it sounds silly, right? But every one of us, I'm going to guess, is it a church that has X many on the books and only X many in the pew? Right? And typically that number is around half. One of the things I do as a church minister, uh, it's, it sounds so weird that a sign of success is we left with fewer members. But I want to leave a church with fewer members. 
if they haven't been in attending church for 20 years, if they know they're living in open sin, why don't we do the process and clean the books? And that sounds so like cleansing. It sounds purging. It sounds awful. But what good is it doing to have their name? I would say it's a spiritual detriment to have those names on the book because we're anesthetizing them to the true need. You know, you've separated yourself from Christ, from the body of Christ. It's better for them and it's better for the church to have accurate records be kept. Okay. So that's one way. Yes, ma'am. Of course. Uh, to be clear, I'm talking about a process to do it, not an event. I don't think it's wrong. It's like, by the way, here's 50 names. All in favor? That's not how it works. But what you should do is try to, like, for instance, when we did this in Kalamazoo, we put in the bulletin even, have anybody even heard of these names? Right? And put it for months. Collected them, then try to call them, visit them, send out a letter, send out another letter, try to get information. And you start with the easiest, obvious ones, which are those who we don't have any information on, we don't know where they live, nobody even remembers who they are, we don't have a phone number for contact, we've tried every avenue, and by the way, the church manual outlines this process, right? It should take a couple of years. So I'm not just saying just on a day, on a Thursday, come in and all the names are gone. But there should be a process in place to let, the, to let the what's on the books be a more accurate reflection of what's actually in the church. That's the goal. And there's probably different iterations for how to get that done, but that's one thought. Um, the other thing is, I would say, is that don't expect, even if your pastor gets this, to come in for half, yeah, pastor, come preach that to It's going to be incumbent upon you as members to start operating that way, even if the church isn't all there. You're going to be that training school. You're going to be that living example of active, participative membership. Okay? Here it is. Let's get to our conclusions. Counterintuitive as it may be, statistically, and this is where we'll come back to your point from earlier, territories with fewer pastors almost always grow faster. And the only reason I put the word almost in there is because there might be some anomaly I haven't tripped up on or something. You might find somewhere where that's not the case. But the overwhelming majority is if you have fewer pastors, you have higher growth rates. A reasonable argument could be made that pastors kill church growth, not because pastors are doing a bad job. They're just doing the wrong job very well. Oftentimes, instead of doing their job, they're doing your job. Our problem isn't poor pastors, but poor expectations of pastors by the members, by the pastors themselves, and yeah, I'll say it, by the conference administrators. I'm new to the job, I'll maybe lose it. <laughs> but it's fact. To truly be a people of the book, we should work the way the book directs. Inspiration has warned and history has demonstrated that settled pastors leads to settled elders and settled deacons and settled members. And we all kind of settle in here in a place that's not our home. Jesus said the harvest is plenty, but the what? Workers, the laborers are few. So I would urge that in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we should reclaim the language. Member should mean missionary. We have far too many watchers not nearly enough workers. 
What we need is a, lay, a revitalization of a lay-driven personal ministry. There's one quote that Ellen White says, and I'm sorry, I don't remember. Please, go ahead. It says, everyone that's born is a Christian. Yes, is, is born into the kingdom as a missionary. That's right, yes. I believe that's from Desire of Ages, or is it Steps of Christ? Either way, it's, I think it's Desire of Ages. It says, yeah. all God's biddings are, are his enablings. He's calling us to be workers for him. He will give us the ability to do the work. Amen. Amen. Acts of the Apostles, page 9, of course, the church was organized for service, right? Its mission is to carry the gospel of the word and she, to the world. And she talks about how the members of the church are supposed to shine forth this glory. That's the goal. Acts of the Apostles, page 9. I can't believe I don't have that quote in here, but we've got to get it in there. Yes, sir? One question. Okay. And I related to this comment earlier. I spent a fair bit of time in Africa also. Okay. I remember the church I was at for five months. The pastor lived a mile away. I saw him regularly, only on weekdays. Never mm. once did he come to the sermon at that church. Where was he? He was conducting a school for at-risk youth. He was conducting a layperson's evangelism program. And he went to the nearby church that was a smaller group. That's where he was on Sabbath. Amen. And it was, but the thing was, it was a totally different mindset. Yes. From the members, yes. they believed it was their job to keep this church active and prosperous and witnessing. Right. <coughs> Here, that's not our mindset. We so view church we as a right instead of a responsibility. Exactly. Yes. So my question is, what do we do on a, on a corporate and collective level to change this mindset and perspective to bring it back? Well, I think that there are two ends of this. I view it this way, and... I'll be careful because it is recorded, and I, I don't want to be misunderstood later on, but I think that, the, like, let's take a conference level, like we're here in Michigan. I think there are three tiers, three layers. I think there's the conference administration, then there's the pastor, the middle management, if you will, and then there's the local members, okay? In that setup, the two most permanent places are the Local memberships are probably going to live in that town for quite a while, for the most part, and the conference administrators who are going to keep that job for a while. At least in Michigan, we've had a certain history of that. Okay. The pastors move around. They're the moving parts right in this thing. So, in my experience, when I talk to lay people about this concept, I've never had them be like, no, I don't see it. Not biblical. Right? They're like, yeah, let's do it. When I talk to pastors, they're like, yeah, let's do it. I presented this a few years ago at the morning meeting. First person, now that he's retired, I'll say, <laughs> Elder Gallimore came down and said, that's exactly what we need to be doing. Everybody agrees, but nobody's doing it. It's a very odd situation. So the best remedy I can come up with, now I'm in the conference office, I'm not an officer, I'm just a department director, okay, but in this realm, this is my job, is to talk about personal ministries and the Sabbath school work. These are lay-driven initiatives, right? but we're to cooperate with the ministerial department closer and closer all the time so that those two interests are aligned as much as possible, that we can have more people involved with public evangelism, not just the professional pastor or the hired hand, the evangelist kind of thing. Um, we have literature evangelism ministries. We all have the same picture in mind, but it still escapes us. I would imagine why. Let's say that they were to stand up and say, we're headed this direction in the Michigan Conference, we're going to start putting our money where our mouth is. What would that look like on the local level? You'd probably have more pastors with districts 
a larger districts, right? You might have a whole territory of the state has one pastor, or maybe say, I think biblically might be a team of pastors. Okay? How are the church members going to feel about that? They're going to feel, yeah, maybe uh, they're going to be upset. Yeah, there's also a lot of, uh, there's a membership mentality to this. It says, you know what, we return our tithe. We're paying for this. It's like a consumer mentality. We're not getting what we paid for. It's that wrong expectation that leads into what I'm returning my tithe for is to have someone minister to me. I don't know exactly how to change it, but I'm doing my best here today. But you see what I'm saying? But I think it takes a lot of tedious, laborious conversation where we lay out these principles and make it so ridiculously clear from the Bible, from the spirit of prophecy, from Adventist history. And by the way, when we come back tomorrow, we're going to look at the church manual. One of the best resources you have on your side is the church manual. These principles are already written in there. Now, I'm not saying it's inspired. I'm not going there. But what I am saying is that the church as a collective, which includes those parts of Africa and South America and Asia, there are growing more gangbusters, have said, what's the best thing? And, and there's some radically cool ideas in the church manual already. We're just not doing. So one of the things you can do, you can say, I'm not introducing anything new. I'm just trying to apply what we've already agreed upon. And all of a sudden, you're going to have you know, your monthly missionary program. You're going to have your interest coordinator. You're going to, by the way, I, I don't want to give away tomorrow too much, but oh, I don't have to. Time's up. <laughs> so we'll do it tomorrow when we come back. But we'll, the title of tomorrow's message is Mining the Manual. How do you take some of the resources we already have and put them to practice in your local church? Have we been clear? Yeah. Amen. Let's bow our heads forward to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this sunshiny day. Thank you for the privilege and responsibility of being a member of the body of Christ. Teach us how to do our work your way. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.